It might be a hairstyle, which in my days were mullets and bowl cuts. Maybe it's fashion. We want to be like everybody else in that way. In my day, it was uh, Zubas. You remember those, the tight rolled jeans? Or maybe it's technology. In my day, a Walkman and then eventually a Discman and today uh, a phone. We want to be like everybody else, right? Oh, so-and-so has one. So, like, so we want to be like everyone else when we're teenagers. That seems to be their impulse. And if we're honest, we never totally grow out of either of those, the toddler or the teenager impulse. We like to do things ourselves, and we do most of the time like to blend in with others. Today we are going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we've been walking through the major Old Testament covenants, we're now going to pull over at God's covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're actually going to spend a relatively small amount of time there. Normally, you know, as I preach through a passage, we spend almost all of our time in that one passage. Today, it's going to be a smaller amount of time in that one passage, and then a lot of time kind of exercising our fingers and working our way through the rest of Scripture to see how God's promise to David is fulfilled not just at one moment, but at many moments throughout the rest of Scripture in the person and work of Jesus. So that's where we're headed today. Where we left off, though, last week was God's covenant with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. So I want to just kind of get us caught up from where we left off to where we are today, because I think that's going to be helpful as we go forward. We left off in Exodus chapter 24, God giving the law to Moses, to, uh, through Moses to Israel. Now, if you go through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what God's people are trying to figure out as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years, they're God's people on the way to live in God's land, figuring out what it looks like to live under God's rule according to God's law so that God's presence might dwell with them now in the form of the tabernacle. And then, if you keep flipping in your Bible, you get to the book of Joshua. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua, finally, God's people seeking to live under God's rule get to move into the land that God had promised them. So that's what we read about in the book of Joshua. Following Joshua, though, is the book of Judges. And Judges is often described as like a downward spiral of evil, where where God's people sin against him, God sends a judge to deliver them. They repent. It gets better for a little bit, and then it just, but it just keeps getting worse and worse over time. Listen to the conclusion. The very last verse of the book of Judges, if you have your Bible, you can just flip to Judges 21, verse 25. Here's the very last verse of that book. It says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's like the toddler impulse kind of being lived out. No king, everybody just does what is right in their own eyes, and that doesn't go well. Now, the very next book, a very short book, a very encouraging book that I'd encourage you to read just like this afternoon, the book of Ruth, a great reminder of God's provision, even in a very dark kind of time. That's followed by the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we see the teenager impulse come out in God's people as they want to be like everybody else. So if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, you would find in a couple of different spots, including verse 5 and verse 20, that God's people want to have a king, and their reasoning for wanting to have a king is, 
everybody else has one, right? right? We want to have a king so that we can be like all the nations. That's what they want. That's their motivation, at least, they say, for wanting to have a king. Saul, then, is chosen as the first king. If you continue to go on, you see that in, in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. And by the time you get to chapter 15, we see in 1 Samuel 15, a young man named David being anointed the king after God rejects Saul. Well, Saul is rejected in 15 and then David anointed in chapter 16. And so as you go through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, you've got the reigning king, Saul, and the soon-to-be king, already been anointed as King David, and there's great conflict between the two of them. Oftentimes, David fleeing for his life because Saul wants to see him dead. That brings us to the book of 2 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel, King Saul dies. Now, young David is reigning over the kingdom. He starts his reign at the age of 30 in the year 1010 B.C., and that takes us to where we're going to focus some of our time and kind of start this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bible with you, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to go verses 1 through 17 together and then see how that points us ahead to Jesus. If you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word? 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's pray first. Father, would you, would you help us now? Because we know that we have an impulse, an impulse to want to do things our own way, an impulse to want to blend in with people around us, but we know that's not what you've called us to. And so I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would purify us now, that you would create in us a dissatisfaction with things the way they are, and a longing for the true and better King. Father, accomplish these things in us, that you might build up your church, that you might glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest. 
from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. You can be seated. Inside your bulletin, there is a sermon notes and life group guide, uh, a number of things we're going to cover and we're going to move and you might not be able to catch up with everything if you're not following the outline today. So I encourage you to turn to that. The first point, we're going to just look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to provide a forever king in his covenant with David. One thing you'll notice in what I just read is the word covenant isn't even used there. But later in Scripture, when this is referred back to, the word covenant is often used. So here God is making a covenant with David. And did you notice how it started? How in verses 1 to 3, it's like finally for once, God's people are living in God's place under God's rule. There's not enemies constantly attacking them. Things are actually going well. And so David and Nathan, his friend, are sitting there talking, and David's looking around him at the palace that he lives in, the house of cedar, and he's thinking about the tabernacle, this temporary tent that's that's moving around that is the dwelling place of God, and he has this impulse that is a good impulse, I want to do something for God. I want to do something for God. God, I want to make you a house. Why should I live in a house of cedar and you're moving around in a tent? I want to make you a house. Seems like a good impulse. But what we see in verses 4 through 17 is God saying, no, I'm going to make you a house. It's not, it's not, David, about what you can do for me. It's about what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a house. So verses 4 to 7 are God basically saying, I don't need a house. Right? Uh, I, I rescued you, your people, from slavery in Egypt, and from that day till this day, I'm fine without a house. I don't need a house. And then in verses 8 through 11, God starts with some review. He reminds David, listen, I took you out of the pasture. You were following sheep around, and now you're going to be the king. Right? And God reminds him, this spot where you're at right now, it tells us in verse 1, they had rest from their enemies. If you look at verse 11... This is the promise that God had made. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is the moment that they are at right now. God has given His people living in His place rest from all these attacks of the enemy. This is what God has done already in David's lifetime. But now God's about to make a promise of what He's going to do after David's lifetime. So, basically, right in the middle of verse 11, we see that switch where it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See how it's gotten flipped around. 
The Lord's going to make you a house. Let's just read verse 12 again. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. He's, he's reminding David, David, a day's coming when you're not going to be around anymore. Lie down with your fathers doesn't mean he's taking a nap. It means he's dead, right? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God is, is preparing David, making a promise to David that there will be offspring coming from you who will be like a forever king. He shall build a house or a dynasty for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? So there's going to be a forever king sitting on a forever throne. Verse 14 though is a little confusing because here, check this out. Because we're reading this, and as, as New Testament believers, we're reading this, and we're like, oh, that's about Jesus. Verse 14, actually, look at verse 14, says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Later, we're going to get to a spot in the New Testament that uses that first half of verse 14 and says, that's about Jesus. But look at the second half of verse 14. That can't be about Jesus, right? Because the second half of verse 14 says, when he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men. Does Jesus ever commit iniquity? No. Okay, so when God is promising David a forever king who will sit on a forever throne to rule his forever kingdom, is he talking about Solomon or Jesus? Well, it looks like sometimes he's talking about Solomon and sometimes he's talking about Jesus because we know that Solomon is going to both live and die, so he's not going to be sitting on the throne forever. We know Jesus doesn't commit iniquity. This is often the way prophecy works. There's kind of these multiple layers of fulfillment. This is going to happen after David's lifetime. Some fulfilled immediately through King Solomon, David's son. Much of it not fulfilled until the coming of Jesus, which we'll get to here in a moment. A forever king sitting on a forever throne, ruling over a forever kingdom. I love verse 16. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. This nation with such a bumpy history. And oh, what a promise. It's unshakable. God will provide a forever king ruling from a forever throne over a forever kingdom after generations of wandering and battles and chaos and disappointments, this sounds wonderful. And the moment we're at now is God's people are at rest in God's place under David's ruling. Yet God's promise is for beyond David's lifetime. That God will fulfill His promise through David's offspring. So, Let's look at the rest of the Old Testament. So we're doing like Bible survey in one sermon. Okay? If you look at the rest of the Old Testament and you're wondering, how does this work out? For God to rule over a forever kingdom through a forever king sitting on a forever throne, how's that going to work out? Well, if you continue to walk through the rest of the Bible. Remember I said King David's reign started in the year 1010 B.C. Okay? 1010 B.C. Well, what we see immediately after David is certainly David and Solomon fall short. You, you just read through the rest of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And, and what we know from earlier, 
like the book of Judges, having no king? Well, that didn't work. Well, now they have a king like all the other nations. And what we're finding out is that doesn't seem to work all that much better. Because you read through these books and what you see is murder, rape, family division, betrayal, and death. And in First and Second Kings, we see David die and Solomon rise. And maybe you wonder, is this the one that God had promised? Because Solomon possesses all of this wisdom and attains all of this wealth. He builds a beautiful temple along with a palace for himself. Maybe this is the forever king sitting on the forever throne to rule God's forever kingdom. And then we see Solomon fall short. The kingdom splits. God's people aren't even one people anymore. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, if you read through, remember, you read through those books and it, and it says, and, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The northern kingdom, if you kind of, it goes back and forth between Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, never once has a good king. Never. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, they occasionally have a good king. And in the end, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom end up in exile. So God's people not doing a very good job of living under God's rule and now not even living in the land that God has promised to them. Eventually, a remnant of God's people would return to the land as a much less impressive nation and eventually construct a much less impressive temple. And it kind of looks like God's promise has failed. And so throughout this time, throughout this period of 1,000 years, God needs to continually remind his people of his promise. And you would understand why. Because if you're looking at the circumstances around you in that time, you're thinking, oh, this isn't really working out. But throughout the Psalms and the prophets, God is going to be reminding his people. So, so remember, Psalms are, are basically like the hymn book of God's gathered people. When they get together, they're going to use psalms to help them sing together and pray together and worship together. And so frequently in the psalms, many of them written by David himself, there's going to be these reminders of God's promise. Psalm 89 was not a psalm written by David, but it was a great reminder. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Psalm 89 And I want you to just hear these reminders. Imagine God's people gathered together, looking at the circumstances around them, knowing that, yes, our God is faithful, but he made this promise to David, and it doesn't seem to be working out. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 28, says this, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Isn't this good? Like, God's people have to get together and remind each other of this. God is saying, I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forsake my covenant. Verse 35, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. 
And God's people, just like we do today, need to continually get together and through the songs that we sing and the preaching of the Word of God and through the prayers that we pray, be reminded and remind each other, despite what the circumstances might look like, God will fulfill His promise. He will not go back on His covenant. And that's what God's people are doing throughout the Old Testament as they gather together, led by the book of Psalms. Then you turn to the prophets. This one is often quoted at this time of year, and rightly so. Turn to the prophets. Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet sent by God to remind God's people that God will keep His promise. I know everything's falling apart and it doesn't look like it, and I'm telling you judgment is coming, yet God will keep His promise. Isaiah chapter 9. What does Isaiah say to the people? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Listen, this is 300 years after God's promise to David. Stuff hasn't always gone well. This is 700 years before the birth of Christ. Stuff won't always go well. But here's what it says. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? This promise, this sure promise that comes through the Psalms, through the prophets. One more prophet, Isaiah, I mean Jeremiah, the next one, okay? Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33, 14 to 17. Jeremiah's prophesying uh, over a hundred years after the time of Isaiah, right? Now we're about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And Jeremiah is prophesying. Look at Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 17. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. And I wonder if God's people aren't saying, yeah, you've been saying that for a while now. 400 years. When is this coming, right? We want to feel this as we read the Old Testament. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness for thus says the Lord. I love it when the prophets say that. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings or to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. And it's been 400 years and they're wondering, are you sure? And it's going to be 600 more years as they wait. And if you went through the rest of the Old Testament, you would recognize this. That you get to the end of the Old Testament... And we still haven't seen the forever king sitting on the forever throne, reigning over God's forever kingdom. And then worse than not even seeing it laid out in the Old Testament, there's 400 years of silence. There's a gap between the Old Testament and New Testament where we don't have God's word given to God's people for 400 years. You think you've been waiting long for some stuff? A thousand years of longing for the better forever king. They've been waiting, but no king has qualified in all of that time. 
until in the most unexpected kind of way, at perhaps an unexpected time, we get to turn over to the New Testament. Go ahead and do that. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. I want to show us, we're going to take some time to do this, I want to show us how this longing that Israel had, this promise that God made, this covenant that He made, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Look at this. Luke chapter 1. This is familiar. You've heard this before, haven't you? Have you noticed how many songs we sing at Christmas time? You talk about David and talk about the king, right? Look at this. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Listen to this now. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, young teenage virgin in Nazareth, is told this, this promise they've been waiting a thousand years to be fulfilled is going to be fulfilled by the one who will be in your womb. The one who will come from you will be the forever king to sit on the forever throne to rule over God's forever kingdom. And then we see this played out as we walk through the book of Luke. We walk through the Gospels. We get to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we see the kingdom breaking through. Here's what we see. Uh, Luke 4, 43. Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And what we see in the Gospels is how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is something that is proclaimed and something that is displayed through miracles and healings and exorcisms and all sorts of other things that reveal this is what it looks like when Jesus reigns. But then, there's these moments throughout the Gospels where everybody's conception, everybody's that was, was now being introduced to Jesus, they wonder, no, this is going to be another one that looks like the one and it's not the one. Because you know what Jesus tells them over and over again three times? I'm going to suffer and they're going to kill me. And the people are thinking, no. A forever king sitting on a forever throne ruling over a forever kingdom, they don't get killed, they don't suffer and die. Three times, though, Jesus makes this clear to them. Each time, it's like they don't quite get it. Luke tells us of later in Jesus' ministry, this time when he enters Jerusalem, we're actually going to flip back to Mark. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to flip back to Mark really quick because Mark gives us a few more details on what the people said as Jesus came into Jerusalem. They're, they're thinking, all right, this is, this is our time. Listen to what the people said as Jesus came in on what we call now Palm Sunday. Remember, he's, he's riding on, on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. He, listen to what the people said. Mark 11, verses 9 through 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, 
Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're thinking he finally came. And they're right. But their understanding of what he's come to do, they still don't quite get that. But they know, like, this is it. This is, our, this is the, the, the king coming to reign over the kingdom. The one descended from David. Hosanna, save us. And then we read this. Flip over to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, verse 35. Jesus has been unfairly tried. He's been beaten. And He's been nailed to a cross. Verse 35 says this, As His body hangs there on the cross, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself, if He is the Christ of God, His chosen one. Christ means Messiah or anointed king. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This doesn't look like the forever king who will reign over the forever kingdom from the forever throne. He's hanging on a cross and the people there are mocking him as king with a mocking sign over his head that says the king of the Jews. But then things change again when you get to chapter 24 and on the third day, the tomb that they had laid his body in is found to be empty. And when we flip to the sequel of the book of Luke, that is the book of Acts, go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching a sermon on the day of Pentecost and he has just quoted a long section from a psalm of David, Psalm 16. (laughs) And I love what he does with it. Look at Acts chapter 2. The psalm that he's quoting is a Davidic psalm that is in verses 25 through 27, but I want to look at verses 29 and following. Listen to what Peter does. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So when David was writing this psalm, David is not talking about himself because I can tell you with confidence a little, little less than a thousand, a little over a thousand years ago, David died. He was buried and you can go visit his tomb. Right? This is not about David David was writing about something else. What was he writing about? Verse 30, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. As David writes the psalm, David is pointing ahead not to himself, but to God's promise being fulfilled in Christ, who would be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. So the king is resurrected, and now the king is on the throne. I mentioned to you that one time in the New Testament at least, we see 2 Samuel chapter 7 being quoted, and it is in Hebrews chapter 1, and I love these verses. 
So in Hebrews chapter 1, we see Jesus on the throne. Jesus, who was crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. What's he doing now? He's on the throne. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, and listen for the quote from 2 Samuel 7. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, and here's the quote from 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Jesus is on the throne, and he on the throne is receiving the worship that he is worthy of. We're going to flip to one more spot in the New Testament. Flip to Revelation chapter 5. Jesus seated on the throne. We're going to close today by singing a song that comes right out of Revelation chapter 5. That mostly comes out of verses 9 and 10. I want you to look at verses 11 to 14. Revelation 5. You know, a lot of people go to Revelation because they want to know all the details about how the second coming is going to look. We don't want to miss, though, as we turn to the book of Revelation, the throne and the one who's seated on it and the one who deserves all worship. Look at Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Bigger, I think, than the ones that showed up in the field where the shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by now. Even now, as Jesus sits on the throne, surrounded by myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels, what are they doing? They are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And we'll stay in the book of Revelation for the final bit. Because the good news is he's not staying on the throne. The forever king on his forever throne will one day return to consummate or finalize his return to reign over his kingdom. And so if you flipped ahead in the book of Revelation to chapter 19, you would read that he comes to do two primary things in his second coming. He comes to judge and he comes to reign. Look at and be sobered, humbled by Revelation 19. Revelation 19 verse 11 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... He's the king, right? The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. 
King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes to judge and He comes to reign. Look at Revelation 22, 1-5. When He comes, He will reign and the believers will reign with Him. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with the twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right, that took some time. We, we, we raced through a lot of stuff. You might need to spend some more. That would be a, a worthy thing to do in the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. Seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Because we can clearly see in the New Testament or the New Covenant that Jesus is the forever king on the forever throne who will reign over God's forever kingdom. And let me just close with this. So what? Why does that matter to us? Why does that matter? Like, you're like, oh, that's great. Now I can maybe understand the Bible a little better, how the Old Testament is fulfilled. I mean, one thing this does, doesn't this make Christmas a whole lot richer? When you see kind of this, this thousand years of, of longing and waiting and you see all of God's promises. I could have listed way more than four things. I want to list four in the life group guide. You can spend more time going over them yourself. I'm not even going to read these scripture passages. We've been here for a while. Four points. Because Jesus is the forever king. Here's what that means for us. We don't trust in earthly powers. <laughs> because Jesus is the forever king, we don't trust in earthly powers. Way too many of us allow our emotions uh, to dip and to, 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 to soar based on what's happening politically in the nation around us. Jesus is the king on the forever throne who will reign forever. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. And probably you need to watch the news a whole lot less and read your Bible a whole lot more. We don't trust in earthly powers. Number two, because Jesus is the forever king, we can rest. If you look at what, what David does right after, remember David's like, I want to do something for you, God. And David says, no, I'm going to build you a house. In verse 18, the next verse that we didn't read in 2 Samuel 7, David sits in the presence of the Lord. You know how toddlers who have this idea that they can do everything on their own and they want to rule their world, by the end of the day of them trying to rule their own world, trying to convince their parents that it would be good if their parents let the toddler rule their own world, you know what they often do at the end of the day? Crumble and fall asleep in the lap of one of their parents and they look so peaceful and at rest. Because they figured out by the end of the day. They're going to they're gonna forget by tomorrow morning, but they figured out then I'm not king. <laughs> right? And they're just resting. Oh, let's be those kind of people who, who can rest well in a world full of chaos that we can just rest because we know our forever king is reigning from his forever throne. We must prepare for his return. That's number three. Because Jesus is the forever king, we must prepare for his return. I just read it in Revelation 19 and Revelation 22. He's coming again to judge and He's coming again to reign. And until He comes, we need to be about making sure that we and others are ready. So are 
you? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Do you have confidence that when Jesus returns, instead of receiving eternal punishment, you will be receiving eternal reward? Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved, for you to be one who will not only uh, be with Him, worshiping Him, but reign with Him forever. This is what Scripture promises. This comes as you simply repent of your sins, submitting yourself to Him, receiving the free gift of salvation. Are you prepared for His return? And the fourth and final thing I'll mention, there's many other things. Because Jesus is the forever King we worship. Jesus, the forever King, is worthy of our worship. Revelation tells of His second coming, but again, over and over again, we see the throne and worship happening around the throne. The good news is this, church, the forever King has come. He is on the throne, and He is coming again. And for those who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that God loves, we know this. That He is worthy of our worship. And it would be a right response to sing to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that like we sang earlier, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the opportunity we had today to, to walk through so much of it. I pray that as we look at your word more and more in the days to come, that you would give us a greater and greater confidence that you, God, are faithful and you, God, will fulfill every one of your promises. And would you make us a people ready, worshiping you from this day forward until all of eternity. As we gather together with all the saints around the throne, with the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels who worship Jesus, the one who is on the throne and the one who is worthy. Thank you for 